All right, we, uh, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, so if you all want to turn there, chapter 1, if you're using a blue Bible that we provide, it's on page 983. We're continuing along in, in our series, which is about once a month where we're in the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Christians at Colossae. And in verses 12 through 14, which we covered a few weeks ago, Paul explained why we as born-again Christians ought to continually give joyful thanks to God our Father, which was pretty timely since Thanksgiving was at hand. And it's because the Father has made us fit to inherit his kingdom, delivered us from Satan's tyrannical rule, and placed us under the benevolent rule of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ought to give continual thanks to him. Especially for our salvation, right? That's what Paul placed the emphasis on. And Paul points out in verse 14 that all of this, all of the Father's work, on our behalf, this, this work of salvation was made possible thanks to Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. That is, Christ gave his life as our ransom, bearing the wrath of God for our sins and dying in our place so that God could grant us forgiveness of sins. Now, in this letter, with the focus now on Christ, the beloved Son of God, under whose benevolent rule we have been graciously placed, the Apostle Paul goes into this next section in verses 15 to 20. And that's going to be our text this morning. Verses 15 to 20. Paul goes on in this section to describe in greater detail this one, whom he has already said is our Lord and Redeemer. It's in this section that we're going to see what is without a doubt one of the most majestic portraits of Christ in all of Scripture. In this small little letter written to these Christians living in this small little town, in a fairly brief section, it's one of the most majestic portraits of Christ in all of Scripture. So let's read it first. Starting in verse 15. Paul writes this of the beloved Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross so as you'll see there's a lot of theology more specifically Christology in this passage this is packed with profound truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so one of our primary applications this morning is going to be 
applying and reminding ourselves or knowing these truths and having a proper perspective on who Jesus really is. That he would be elevated in our minds and we would think of him and perceive him as he really is. So the first statement we have here concerning Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. And Paul's not saying of Christ here what Scripture says of man in general. Scripture tells us that God made man, mankind, both male and female, according to his image. Did he not? Does it not? He made them according to his image. But Paul states here that Christ is that very image. God created mankind as relational beings with personal wills and the ability to reason and to love and to exercise dominion over the earth. And in this way, man bears the image of God. Although that image has been severely marred and suppressed because of man's sin. However, Christ, the divine son, who entered into the world as a man being God in the flesh, he is the full and perfect image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1.3, Scripture says, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And in John chapter 14, Christ said concerning Himself to His disciples, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father, have I, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's like, well, show us the Father, that'll be enough. You're going to the Father, just show us the Father. He's like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he can say that because he is the express image of God. So back in our text in Colossians, we see that Christ is not only the image of the invisible God, but also, Paul says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the term firstborn has one of two meanings. It either refers literally to first in birth order, which is kind of obvious, firstborn, there's that, or it refers figuratively to first in rank, in status. And the typical custom in ancient times was that the firstborn son, as in the son who was born first, was considered first in rank among his brothers, if he had any, and he was granted special rights and privileges, particularly the right to the family inheritance, or at least to a double portion of it if he had brothers. He had special status and privilege. He ranked above his brothers if he had any, and he was first and foremost of the offspring. So in light of this, this term firstborn was often used figuratively of those who, like that of a family's firstborn son, enjoyed special honor and prominence. So sometimes it has nothing to do with birth order or any of that, but it's just someone who has that esteemed status of special honor and prominence and even perhaps some sort of inheritance awaiting them. So it refers to superiority and rank. And that's how Paul is using the term here of the Lord Jesus Christ when he refers to him as the firstborn of all creation. Now, 
This is in no way saying, and no way can it be understood to mean that Christ is the firstborn among all creation, as if he is a created being and therefore a part of creation. Because in the very next two verses, and you know, perhaps you've had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. This is one of their go-to verses, at least what we just read. So he's the firstborn. They believe he's a created being, maybe chief among created beings. And they'll show you that little portion, but all you got to do is just read the next verse and the verse after that, which says that he created all things and existed before all things. Paul says it immediately after that. So there you go. There's problem solved. Doesn't refer to first in birth order, but first in rank over and above all of creation. So he's not ranking first among created things, but over and above all of creation. Now, starting in verse 16, the Apostle Paul begins to explain his statement that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And we can tell this by his use of the word for at the beginning of the sentence at the next verse, which can alternatively be translated because he's the firstborn of all creation because. And Paul explains that Christ is the firstborn over all creation because or due to the fact that by him, what? All things were created. And the Greek word that is translated as by, this preposition, is the preposition that literally means in, in, I-N. But it can be translated in a variety of ways because it has a variety of uses. So, for example, when this, this word occurs... In the manuscripts, and we have a translation of those Greek manuscripts, whenever it occurs and those decisions the translator are made, sometimes it's translated as in, among, into, with, by, because of, when, during, and so forth. It has many uses, and therefore many possible meanings. And in each of its occurrences in Scripture, its meaning and therefore its translation is determined by the immediate context. And in the case here, I would suggest that the, the preposition be translated literally as in, so that it reads, for in him all things were created. That's how it's translated, by the way. The other five times this preposition occurs in this passage. In verse 16, do you see it? In heaven. It's the same word. In heaven. Verse 17, in him. Verse 18, in everything. Verse 19, in him. And verse 20, in heaven. So just being consistent with the way it seems to be used in just this little section, we should say that in him all things were created. Now the fact that all things were created by Christ, so we're not taking that away, the statement that he has, cre he actually, all things were created by him, because Paul actually makes that point later in the verse. The question is, what is meant by the statement, in him all things are created? In him all things are created? It means that all things were created in reference to him or in relation to him. In other words, Christ is, he's at the center of it all. All that exists, he is at the center. All things were created with him as the focal point. He is the reason why all things were created. He's at the center of it all. And so when we hear all things, when I say all things are made by Christ, what do you typically think of or look to first? 
the world around you, the material world, you know, the sky and the mountains. And again, I mean, take that all in because scripture says he made it all. And now all of it was made with him as the goal and the focal point. So we initially think maybe in terms of the physical world in which we live and the earth and all that's in it. However, Paul makes a point to emphasize that by all things, he means all things. And he says, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In other words, all things in the earthly material realm and in the heavenly spiritual realm. The earthly material realm, realm is visible to us. And you might even think, well, there's some things I can't see, like you know, atoms and stuff. Well, technically we can. We can actually have the ability to, with tools and technology, see those things. So all things in the material realm, which are visible, and all things, Paul says, in the heavenly spiritual realm, which is invisible to us. Paul clarifies that all things in the invisible spiritual realm includes what he says after this. The mighty angels whom he refers to as thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Notice that he says visible and invisible. And then he says these four terms. It's, it's expanding upon or clarifying what he's including in that category of the invisible things. These terms refer to the mighty angels, spiritual beings that have tremendous power and authority. I mean, anytime you're reading your Bible and you come across a depiction of one of the angels or a work of one of the angels, it, they're terrifying. They're powerful. And throughout Scripture, we see that even they, mighty as they are and feared as they are, Paul's making the point that even the highest of their order are created beings whose existence is centered upon Christ. So you think even the most powerful and mighty of angels, well, guess what? They're creatures. They were created with Christ as the focal point in reference to Christ, in relation to Christ. And then in addition to this, Paul goes on to say in verse 16, all things were created through him. That is, all things were created by him. So there it is right there. That, that's the statement to say that all things were created through him, also meaning by him. Scripture tells us that all things were created and brought into existence according to the Father's will. It was the Father's will to do so. It was his purpose. And here we see that it was through the Son that the Father's will to create all things was accomplished. He's the agent so in other words, Christ, the Father's beloved Son, created all things according to and in perfect harmony with the Father's will. And this is how it can be said in Scripture, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. The Father willed it, the Son brought it about and carried out that will. All things are created by him. And in John's gospel at the beginning of it, John, the apostle John writes this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, he clarifies, well, who is this word? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in other words, in the beginning was the Son. He was there in the beginning with God, and he was God, and yet with God. Do you see what we're seeing right here? We say God is a trinity. He's the triune God. One God, one being, eternally existent in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why it can be said that he was with God, but also he was God. All things were made through, John's Gospel says, all things were made through God the Son. God the Son. And not only were all things created in him and through him, but the Apostle Paul goes on to say in his letter to the Colossians in verse 16, that all things were created for him. For him. All things on earth and in heaven, even the mightiest of angels, Paul's saying, including the devil and his angels, fallen angels. The point is made that they were all created for Christ. Now, if we remember, if we go back to Genesis and, and get the account of how all things came into existence, when God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, it says when God completed that act of creation in the creation week and the crowning point of that was creating man in his image and likeness to have dominion over the earth. At that point, when he was finished, he declared everything to be very good, meaning everything at the beginning was what? It was perfect, perfect. However, as the story goes, as history went, that didn't last long. It seems to not have lasted that long at all. For many of the angels, as we learn from Scripture, rebelled against God at some point in there. And sometime after that, man, man created in the image of God, rebelled against God, which resulted in the natural world, that is the earth and all that is in it, falling under the curse of God and being subjected to frustration and futility. And yet... Despite this rebellion, despite all the consequences of sin and rebellion in the world, the fact that all things have been created for Christ remains. I mean, Paul didn't travel back in time and write this letter. He's writing it in the midst of being in a fallen creation. So this truth that all things are created for Christ assures us that the rebellious activity of the world in this present evil age will certainly come to an end. And the purpose of God in creating all things for Christ did not fail. It remains. That's what Paul's asserting. Even in the midst of this present evil age, it still remains that all things have been created for Christ. So God's purpose has not failed. It will not fail. That rebellion will come to an end. One commentator says this, he says, Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being. And he stands at its end as the goal of the universe. And another commentator says this, to him, Christ, as goal 
the whole of creation, so to him is goal, the whole of creation, and therefore history as well, moved and moves. It was the Father's intention that all things should be summed up in Christ. And he cites Ephesians 1.10, which says that the Father's plan for the fullness of time is to unite or sum up all things in Christ. That is the Father's plan in the fullness of time. All things will be united in Christ and summed up in him. Again, he, all things are created in, in him. He's the center of it all. Through whom everything was made and for whom everything was made. And so to sum up verse 16 then, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the firstborn over all creation. Because he is the focus of creation, the agent of creation, and the goal of creation. All things were created in him and through him and for him. And that kind of statement, you know, you'll see elsewhere in scripture, it's, it's declaring that of God. And Jesus is God the Son. All things were created in him and through him and for him. It is... All of this is evidence of the Father's love for the Son. It's evidence of the Father's love for the Son that the Father willed all of creation into existence to be an inheritance for the Son. And so that idea of the firstborn kind of really is fleshed out here. It's, it's not just this idea that, okay, just superior in rank, but this idea that the Father's intention from the beginning was to will everything into creation or to will everything into existence as an inheritance, all of which would be inherited by the Son. It was, it was evidence of his love for the Son. In Hebrews 1-2, Scripture says, In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So everything came into being through the agency of Christ, and all of it was for the purpose of belonging to him. He would inherit it all, the firstborn of all creation. Now look at verse 17. Paul says, and he is before all things. Well, certainly if Christ created all things, existed before all things, right? And as God the Son, the point is made that he's eternal. He pre-existed everything. Christ as God the Son is eternal. And in keeping with the concept of the firstborn, he is, he is before all things and therefore ranks above all things. Paul then says, and in him all things hold together. So if all things have been, as Paul said in verse 16, created through Christ and for Christ, then it follows that not only were all things created in him, that is in relation to him, but in him all things hold together. He is the reason why everything continues to exist and doesn't descend into chaos and totally fall apart. If it was all created in relation to him, through him, and for him, then in him all of it continues to have its existence. It doesn't descend into chaos and fall apart. He holds it all together. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only the creator of all things, but 
capital S, he is the sustainer of all things as well. Just think about that. Let's bring it all the way down to little old us. Little old you. You're being sustained by him right now. And a lot of these things we take for granted, but this heart's still beating. This mind's still working. Still breathing oxygen. Still living and having my being because he holds it all together. My very existence is owed to him. The scripture says in Hebrews 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3, that, that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he truly does, as the song go, have the whole world in his hands. He holds it all together. And what Paul has made clear in, about Christ in verses 16 and 17 is that nothing is greater than him. Nothing precedes him. Nothing is independent of him. And nothing is outside of his authority. Again, think about all the angelic realm, and, and we're including in that in this present age, fallen angels, these mighty powerful angels who are leading the world in rebellion against Christ, and yet they still depend on him for their very existence. They are not outside, despite the rebellion, they are not outside of his authority and sovereign control. Christ is supreme, and he is the reason why all things exist. In other words, it's all about him. If you didn't get that picture already in this passage. But Paul's not finished. There's more. Look at verse 18. He goes on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul expands our understanding of Christ's supremacy over all things to include not just the original creation, but the new creation as well. The scripture tells us that the church is essentially the first portion of people who will be resurrected and glorified and therefore fitted to inherit and to ultimately inhabit the new creation the future new creation where god will make his dwelling with men that the church is the first portion of people who are fitted to inherit this new creation they'll be the first ones to be resurrected unto glory yet neither the church nor anyone in the church in anyone in any way proceeds or surpasses christ because christ is as paul said he is the head of the church and the founder. He's the beginning. He is the founder of the church. So once again, Paul highlights the superiority of Christ in precedence and in rank. He's before all and above all. With regards to the original creation, but even this work of new creation that God is doing, beginning with the church. Christ was at the beginning of that, at the front and center of it all. He is the head of the body. And his position as head, as the head here, it, it doesn't only point to the fact that he is the church's ultimate governing authority. I mean, your, your mind, right, your brain, is in a sense a, the governing authority over the rest of your body, right? It sends its commands and signals and all of that. It gives it direction. You could say that essentially it's the source of its life from God, but, you know, the brain's critical role and importance there. 
So it can be used figuratively of a person as ultimate governing authority. But beyond that, in this passage, based on what Paul's saying, his role as the head of the body also points to the fact that he is the sustaining source of life for the church. Not just the head and the authority of the church, but he is the actual source of life for the church. Paul says that Christ is the beginning, as in the one by whom the church began. And the establishment of Christ's church was made possible by his glorious resurrection from the dead. He is its beginning. And this took place after he died for the sins of all whom the Father had given him. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we had, Pastor Jeremy had taken us through this passage, but there's this statement in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, listen to this, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul says Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And here, actually relating to order. First in order. So in the sense that he was the first to rise from the dead. And obviously you might, from reading your Bible, you're seeing, okay, well, there have been other, other resurrections, right, that came before the time of Christ. But we are referring to the resurrection unto glory, immortality, never to die again. So people have been raised from the dead, but they're going to die again. It's like, thanks for that. You got a little extra time, Lazarus. So he was the first to resurrect from the dead unto glory, never to die again. And Paul concludes this thought in verse 18 with the following statement. That in everything he might be preeminent. So everything in this passage has been building up essentially to this point, that statement right there. It's all been building up to that point. That's where Paul's headed. And the word preeminent means having superiority over all others in rank, in dignity, or importance. He's preeminent. There's nothing in all of creation, Paul says, no creature, no object, no act, no power, that can even compete with the greatness of Christ. Not just preeminent in some things, but preeminent in all things. Any great good thing you can imagine, he is superior in it all. So Paul, having already explained that why Christ is the firstborn over all creation, here's what we're going to see in verses 19 to 20. He explains why Christ had to also be the firstborn from the dead. He's firstborn all over all creation. That was already established. But he also says he's firstborn from the dead. Why? Well, in verses 19 and 20, he writes this. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what's implied in, in verse 20 by saying that there's a need for a reconciliation of all things and the establishment of peace is what? What's implied? All things need to be reconciled? There needs to be peace established? 
So what's implied is that what once was declared to be very good was now hostile to its maker. The world that was created in Christ and through Christ and for Christ was, because of the willful acts of its moral creatures, was because of their rebellion. So this world that was created for him exists in rebellion under the curse of sin and in bondage to corruption, and therefore what? It needs saving. Because rebellion reaps the wrath of God, who is his righteous and holy. But Paul says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, which is another statement that points to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is his God. I mean, if the statement he is the image of the invisible God is not enough, Paul says, all the fullness of God, that is, the totality of his power and his attributes reside in Christ. In other words, his attributes and his essence resides in Christ. He is God. And this makes Christ perfectly fit and indeed the only one capable of reconciling all things to himself. No one else could do that. The world needs saving. The world needs to be reconciled to its maker. And there is only one who is fit to do that. And it is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that the foundation for this work of reconciliation is... The peace that Christ established through his death on the cross. In which he as the God-man bore the full penalty of the sins of all whom the Father had given him. Thus, making it possible for them to be born again as new creatures through faith in him. And ultimately to be glorified to live and reign with him in his kingdom and in the presence of God and the new creation. But all of that is possible, it was made possible in Christ's redemptive work on the cross. It's Christ's redemption of a particular people. Those whom the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world. It's Christ's redemption of this particular people to inherit with him this glorious new world that guarantees that the world will be Restored, reconciled to God. Paul wrote in, in his letter to the Romans, he wrote this, and this helps us understand the, the order of things. In chapter 8, he writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, if Christ didn't come into the world to give his life as a ransom for the many and die for sins and rise again, then there would be no reconciliation of the world. Because the world, in its state of rebellion and bondage to corruption, would be subject to reap only the just wrath of its holy and righteous creator. However, here's the good news, right? 
the gospel, the good news. God could not allow this to happen because it would mean what? I mean, if if the whole world just reaped his righteous wrath, it would be justice. There's nothing wrong with that. But God couldn't allow that to be the case or that to happen because it would mean the failure of his purpose to create all things in and through and for the Son. That would mean that all of creation was a failure. Therefore, Paul says it pleased God to send his Son into the world to save the world through him. And on a final note, that all things will be reconciled to God does not mean, and this is important, that all moral creatures will receive pardon for their rebellion. It doesn't mean that all moral creatures will be brought into loving fellowship with God when it says that all things will be reconciled. The reconciliation of all things means this. Because think about what this passage has been talking about. All things meant what? Heaven on earth, visible, invisible, the natural realm, the spiritual realm, the angels, men, everything will be reconciled. So here's what the reconciliation of all things means. And it's this, that the rebellion of the world against Christ will end. And it will be exchanged for universal submission to Christ. It'll be, that's how it's reconciled. It is brought under the lordship of Christ. It's subdued. So, those who are saved by the grace of God, well, they will joyfully submit to Christ. And those who remain in their sin will be forced to submit to Christ. Either way, all things will be reconciled through Christ and united under him. And this is what Paul describes in his letter to the Philippians. We read that in chapter 2. He says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the ultimate outcome. That's the reconciliation of all things. United in submission under the lordship of God the Son, the heir of all things, for whom all things were created. And I thought a helpful quote uh, from a commentator on this particular idea, this idea of reconciling all things under Christ, is, I'll put it up on the screen here, it says, as the Prince of Peace, Jesus will ultimately quell all rebellion against God and his purposes. For believers, this means present reconciliation to God as his friends. As for non-believers and demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them, for their rebellion will be decisively defeated 
by Christ as conquering king so that they can no longer do any harm in the universe. The basis for Christ's reign of peace is the blood of his cross. The cross truly is the pivotal point in human and cosmic history. So all things were created in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He surpasses everything. He is preeminent in everything, including things pertaining to the new creation. He's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from among the dead. And it is by his work on the cross, his saving work, his redemptive work, that all things will be brought to their rightful conclusion under his lordship. And so here are some implications from this passage, just to think of a few. Like I said at the beginning, it gives you an elevated view of Christ, a proper view of Christ. He is not isolated to this figure in the Gospels. He came in humility as the servant to lay down his life as a ransom for many, but he's resurrected unto glory, seated at the right hand of God. He is, according to this passage, he is supreme as God our creator. So we refer to him as the son, but we should never think any less of him as if he's inferior. He is God. He's the second person of the triune God. He's God the son. So we, obviously that would equip us against any false teaching, any cult-like teaching that would somehow try to diminish our view of Christ or diminish the nature of Christ. Because what does scripture say? He is God. He is supreme over all things. Don't let anyone try to belittle your understanding of Christ. And this also shows us that this passage reminds us of his lordship and his centrality and all of life, which if you think about it, I mean, why is this passage here? Why do you think Paul spent this time to make these, this point so clear about the preeminence of Christ and who he is as God the Son? And if we just consider the things he's been talking about in his letters so far, I mean, it can't, comes after, just a little after the fact that his prayer was that we, I mean, as, as Christians, would be filled with the knowledge of God so as to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why do you walk in a manner worthy of him? Because he is ultimately worthy of all things. So let me just present a portrait of Christ so you understand that he is absolutely worthy of your submission, allegiance, love, worship. So it should drive us to walk in a manner worthy of him with the desire to please him in everything. After all, that's why you were made, ultimately for him. And finally... Because what we'll get to later in this letter, we're going to see that there's some issue, there's some false teaching going on in this small little podunk town. Some strange things. And a lot of it, if you read the letter, it seems to be uh, an emphasis on regulate rituals and spiritual or religious rituals and regulations and a, an attempt at some kind of spirituality, higher spirituality than others. Listen to this passage, or read this passage. In Colossians 2, it says this, and so we'll read this later in the letter, but this is probably why he's also bringing this point up. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. 
If these are a shadow, or these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to who? The head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what's he saying? Christ, yes, is superior. He's over all things. He is the head of the church, and he is the sustaining life of the church. And ultimately, when we see this portrait of him as God the Son, the creator of all things, for whom all things exist, we understand that he is sufficient for us. You don't need the trappings of man-made religion or traditions or even, you know, spiritual experiences that somehow make people feel closer to God. The reality is you're in Christ. You're connected with and and, in fellowship with the one who is the creator of all things. You don't need to add anything to Christ. And so that's probably... One of the main reasons why Paul has placed this here to to elevate their view of Christ so that they would see him properly in all his fullness and all his glory. So when he gets around to talking about, all right, this this stuff you guys are hearing from these false teachers, you kidding me? Christ is sufficient. He is over all. He is Lord of all. He is creator of all. You exist for him and you have been united with him. You need nothing else. You lack nothing else because you have Christ. All right, so there are some implications. Think rightly about him. May he be the, as he is the center of the universe, all things may be the center of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portrait of your son, our Lord, for helping us to see him in in all his glory and greatness or to, to perceive him properly. That we might be compelled to live lives worthy of him. To to orient our lives around him. Knowing that he is the center of all things. Father, we pray that we as a a church and in our individual lives. in In our private lives, Lord. That we would honor Christ in our hearts as holy. As supreme. That we would... Think of the ways in which we have somehow taken our eyes off Christ or at least in our minds allowed him to somehow be diminished. Help us to have a high view of your son who is our our head, our authority, our Lord, our king. And help us, Lord, to, to have him be the focal point of our lives because for him we exist. So we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to help us understand the ways in which we can apply that very truth in every corner of our lives that we truly would walk in a manner worthy of him and and that would be motivated by a desire to please him because he is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.